This is Steve Goodrich, known on the trail as Bird Shooter, and this is N2 Backpacking, a podcast for both hikers and backpackers. Hey backpackers, this is Bird Shooter, and tonight on the show we speak with Kaylee, aka Smiles, about her recent hike on the Tour de Mont Blanc, or TMB as it is often known, which is one of the most popular long distance trails in Europe. In the show, Kaylee tells us about the uh, TMB hut system, wild camping, the critters, the ladder climbs, and the sound of music scenery that awaits you on this trail. There's a reason that 60,000 people hike a portion of the TMB each year. So if you're looking for a great European adventure that you can do in two weeks or less, KB has all the details. I also want to give a quick shout out to some recent donors to the podcast, Amos Pruden, Christine Reiner, and David Heithold. Thank you for supporting the show. If you too want to donate and get downloads for your off-the-grid hiking, click on over to n2backpacking.com and follow the podcast link for more details on how you too can support the show. That said, here is episode 55, Kaylee on the Tour de Mont Blanc. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is Bird Shooter, and I'd like to welcome Kaylee to the show, also known as Smiles on the Trail, who recently completed a 170-kilometer or 110-mile thru-hike on the Tour de Mont Blanc, or TMB as it is sometimes known which is a trail that runs through Switzerland, Italy, and France. It circles the Mont Blanc Massive and is one of the most popular long-distance walks in Europe. And Kaylee is here to tell us all about it. Thank you for joining the show tonight. Hey, Bird Thank you so much for having me. It is my pleasure. And I will tell you that having seen pictures and some um, video, actually, of the Tour de Mont Blanc, uh, I am uh, very much looking forward to learning more about it. So... Before we get into the specifics on that trail, let me let me start by saying you're not just an interviewee, but also a listener. You mentioned uh, in an email to me that you were inspired by our podcast with 30-pack on the Pacific Crest Trail in episodes 19 and 20, and went on to hike the PCT in 2017, so congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah, it was a, it was a really fun hike, and I definitely loved uh, hearing the podcast and hearing all 30 packs experiences. It was definitely inspiring and motivational. Yeah. And I should have him back on a show actually, Kaylee, because he is out fighting forest fires right now. And I know it's been a pretty active season, so I'm sure he's got some good stories to tell, but back to you. So tell me, was, was the PCT your first long distance hike? Yes, it was my first long distance hike. And actually it was my second backpacking trip ever. I had only ever done one other backpacking trip those two nights long out near the Grand Canyon. So um, it was definitely, I had to do a lot of online research and listen to a lot of podcasts about it before I went off because I definitely didn't know what I was doing back then. Well, and I mean, and, and I think you're in a good position to speak to that. Is is that pretty common? Because my experience on the Appalachian Trail, and granted it was a number of years ago, but uh, most of the people I met did not have a significant amount of long-distance backpacking experience. Uh, 
when I set out my first time, and I'm curious if that's the case on the PCT or you're running into a lot of veterans or it's kind of a mix. I would say it's a mix. I would say it is kind of funny that through hikes tend to attract a lot of rookies. I think that people come out there for reasons other than backpacking. And so I think that kind of does draw maybe people with a little bit less experience. But in my trail family, we had one veteran hiker and basically four newbies. So I think that you kind of find someone who can lead the blind until they figure it out on their own. At least a lot of the people I was with, it seems like that was pretty common. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would agree with that. So there's obviously a lot out today that did not exist, you know, when I did my through hike. And when I say a lot, I mean, there's a lot more movies out and I mean, you know, Hollywood movies about hiking, right? <laughs> the, the way, um, walk in the woods, uh, Cheryl Strayed's wild, right? Um, there's, yeah. there's also a ton of stuff on YouTube, which I think is super influential in, in many ways. I mean, I, there, I've been introduced to trails I didn't know exist that uh, now I'm dying to do because of YouTube. There's podcasts, there's a lot of blogs and interesting kind of uh, e-zines of, of the hiking community. What, what really, what motivated you to get out there on the, on the Pacific Crest Trail before we shift gears to the Tour de Mont Blanc? Yeah, so I grew up right around the AT and I went on a lot of day hikes with my family when I was a little kid. And I kind of dreamed of doing the AT from the time I was maybe, you know, 10 years old. But after maybe high school, I started hearing more about the PCT. And that is maybe when I was in college was about the time that Wild came out. And after reading Cheryl Strayed's book and seeing the movie, I got a lot more exposure to the PCT and just thought that the geological diversity there, hiking from the desert to the high Sierra to the volcanoes in the Pacific Northwest seemed way more exciting to me than kind of trapezing around my backyard. So I a hundred percent shifted gears and I'd always been a long distance athlete. I did some ultra marathons and so I've always had that long distance or endurance athlete kind of mentality. And so I wanted to take six months and explore and be more connected with nature. And I thought, you know, hiking a long distance trail would be the perfect way to do it, even though I didn't really have backpacking experience. Yeah. And I don't think you necessarily have to have a ton of backpacking experience to to do a long distance trail. It, it's definitely, as I'm sure many have heard, it's much more mental than uh, physical, but I mean, certainly some experience helps. Were, were there certain uh, websites or podcasts or uh, books that really helped you um, get educated before you went out there? Yeah. So actually the PCTA has a great website that where they aggregate a lot of different people's blogs. So what I did was I mostly used that site as a springboard to explore a bunch of different people's experiences. I think it's important for people to know that everyone's hike is different. And, you know, some people are out there with seven pound base weight and they wouldn't do it any other way. And there are some people out there that carry around, you know, 30 pounds of who knows what <laughs> on their back. And everyone kind of has a different approach. And 
it's interesting, I think, to absorb a lot of different um, different content. So I, I definitely use PCTA as kind of a springboard to find a bunch of different blogs. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you have a very good point, right? There's a lot of different opinions on ways to through-hike. So it, it does kind of help to, you know, get different perspectives on things. Um, it was Were there were any, like, YouTube videos you found particularly interesting or podcasts? Or, I mean, obviously you read Cheryl Strade's book. Um, but just curious about, like, you know, any audio or video. Um. I listened to your podcast. That was about the only podcast I listened to. And then in terms of YouTube, I mostly was looking up things like how to use a Sawyer squeeze on YouTube and watching people like standing in rivers, collecting water and trying to figure out some of those basic skills for, you know, how, how that kind of stuff works when you're out in the woods. So that, was primarily what I did, but there weren't any really specific channels. I also watched a lot of the river crossings and fording techniques because that was something that was of kind of big concern my year because of it was a high snow year. So anytime there's high snow in the Sierras, that means that when June, July comes around, you have a lot of melt and a lot of melt means the rivers are a lot higher. So Fording rivers was something that we were all kind of nervous about and did a lot of research on YouTube about just the right ways to do that. Yeah, no, that, that's, I mean, it's a great resource. It's one that I wish we would have had in my day. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. It's always interesting to hear, you know, how, how people kind of get prepared now. So <laughs> I got a few questions for you on this. Now we'll shift to the tour de Mont Blanc, which is really <laughs> the point of this, uh, this discussion, but, um, yeah, I mean, first of all, and I, I guess we can, I don't mean to jump ahead, but I mean, what a contrast, the Tour de Mont Blanc and the Pacific Crest Trail. <laughs> but what, what got you interested in the Tour de Mont Blanc? And then I'll do uh, maybe just a few more bits of information about it. Yeah, so kind of having a background as a runner, I've been really interested in following the ultra running community. And a lot of the most intense ultra running happens in the Alps. And there's a race every year called UTMB, so Ultra Tour de Mont Blanc, and there's an ultra runner who I really like who's won it a couple times named Killian Journey. I might have a crush on him. I don't know. He's he's a pretty amazing runner, but um, I just kind of from following that race and seeing some video footage of it, it's so beautiful, and I just really wanted to see it and experiences up front. I obviously... The winner of that race does it in 20 hours, usually 20 to 24. Um, kind of depends upon weather in the year, but I was really inspired by that and wanted to spend some time out on that trail. And that's 110 miles for Americans, 170 kilometers for pretty much the rest of the world because <laughs> Americans are so weak, we can't learn the metric system, which is ridiculous, but it's true. Um, which that is truly amazing. Um, and, and while we're on the topic, so the Tour de Mont Blanc, once again, it goes through parts of Switzerland, Italy, and France. And you started on the French side, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I started in Les Houches, which is just outside of Chamonix. And um, yeah, so French side. But obviously, it's really interesting because the Mont Blanc Massif itself is actually in both Italy and France, and there are people that go to summit it actually can climb from the Italian side or the French side. So 
Um, they're all right there. It's not that I was obviously, I mean, it's only a 110 mile trail. So the countries are very close together. Well, you've done a 2,600 mile trail there, <laughs> Kaylee. So you get some street credit, no doubt. Um, hey, so just to pop back to the long distance running, did you see any long distance runners when you were on the trail? Like people that were obvious to you that they were trying to knock this out in a short period of time? <laughs> yeah, actually we ended up hiking in an ultra marathon at one point it was a 55 kilometer race. So they weren't doing the whole thing, but it was, I think it was called the grand trail de Courmayer, which is a city on the Italian side. And there was actually an ultra marathon happening while we were hiking, which was kind of fun. The trail was a little crowded, but, um, we could keep up on the uphill because it was the end of their 55 kilometers. So, but the downhill, they passed us. It was kind of, I mean, it was not embarrassing because they were running and not carrying backpacks, but. Right, right. It's, I mean, it's still impressive. You're still doing the work, obviously. Um, and, and before we completely get into the Tour de Mont Blanc trail, um, I got to ask you, have you seen the Barkley Marathon? Uh, yes. I mean, the movie on Netflix. Is, is that not, for, for the listeners that haven't seen it, it is, un, <laughs> whether you're into long distance running or not, it is fascinating. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah. It's really fascinating. I'm not sure I want to do it. That's one of those challenges where, I mean, the, and one of the guys, did he win the guy that had done the AT? I think it's all about mental tenacity, but it's also a little bit of orienteering and, oh, yeah, it's it sounds painful. You're referring to Flying Brian. Yeah. He was the guy that uh, was the first to hike the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail, and the Continental Divide Trail in a single year. And I think he ended up doing it in about 10 months, which is unbelievable. But, wow. um, but he, yeah, he has been in the Barkley a couple times. And um, it, it would really be fun to interview someone about the Barkley, actually. If anyone's listening, I would love to talk to someone about the Barkley. But, <laughs> but the topic today is the Tour de Mont Blanc. Or <laughs> technically, it's Tour de, right? De? Uh, did I say yeah. that? Yeah. Right? Tour de Mont Blanc, and people sometimes don't say the C, but I think if you're if you're in America, you can say Mont Blanc. I think that's totally fine. We can we can get away with it. There you go. Oh yeah. So you started in France. It's it's a loop trail, I understand, right? And and you yes. end basically where you start, correct? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Which I guess, duh, that's the nature of a loop. But <laughs> um, some of the scenes that I saw on YouTube, I watched some videos to kind of get prepared for for our discussion. I mean, they, they honestly reminded me of the sound of music. Unbelievable. Like, you know, I, I, it's like you would be spinning around in a field with your arms out. Those kind of views. Did you have a favorite, favorite view on the, uh, hike? Yeah, I actually really liked, there was one view when we were coming out of Cormier, which is a city in Italy and you have an option. They have a lot of different variants. And so there was an option to kind of walk around the side of the ridge. And there was another option where you got to climb the ridge and see everything from the top. And that was one of my favorite views because the ridge itself was just covered with wildflowers. I was doing it in July, which is peak wildflower season. And so it definitely gave me that sound of music feel where we were on a grassy green ridge with wildflowers all around us. And then you had the Mont Blanc Massif in the background with just these beautiful glaciers. It was it was really gorgeous. I highly recommend it. If you have the chance, go out there and do it. Yeah, I mean, all I could think about is how much I wanted to put my tent up near a lake or, you know, I mean, some of those 
scenes were like the most epic camping scenes I've ever witnessed. But they don't yeah. really let you, and that's what I wanted to ask you about backcountry experience, because obviously on the Pacific Crest Trail, you're camping in a tent quite a bit, but they don't really give you that option. Do you have that option at all on the Tour de Mont Blanc? So you do in some capacity. So wild, it, it's called wild camping, which is just kind of funny, um, but it's definitely illegal in Switzerland. So you're not supposed to do it there. In Italy, it's legal above 2,500 meters. So if you're at the right elevation, you can do it. And then in France, it's legal at any elevation. They just really only want you to camp at sunset and they want you to wake up at sunrise and keep going. So I think that there's some concern. A lot of people do the trail every year that you're going to damage the environment, especially if people don't know good LNT practices. I think that the main concern there is damaging the environment. And so I think that if you do camp, you have to be very respectful and try to use places that have already been used as campsites. We definitely passed campsites everywhere we went. And I would say that I never went 10K without seeing somewhere where someone had clearly set up a tent and been there the night before. I think that it's just really important to practice good LNT, especially just because with so many people on the trail, it, I know that in the PCT, they have like people educating you. Um, sometimes at the start, the first hundred miles, I know they had these like trail runners um, that would tell you to try to camp on spots that had already been camped on to make sure that you weren't just like damaging um, all the grass and whatever other um, plants were around. So I think just being cognizant of the fact that, you know, it takes the environment a little while to recover every season when people are camping there. So um, just trying to use camp spots that are already have already been used is what I try to do. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, leave no trace. I'm going to go ahead and guess here that because it's above <laughs> tree line, there's there's no campfires permitted in the backcountry. I would imagine is that correct? Yeah, I didn't see any evidence of anyone ever having a campfire. Um, so I would I would guess that that's the case. But um, honestly, I didn't look into the rules about that because it it's not something I was planning on doing. Um, but Another point is that they do have designated campsites in some places where even if you're in a country like Switzerland, there is a campground there that we were allowed to stay at. So I think that there are definitely opportunities to camp if you want to go that route instead of doing the huts. Yeah, that makes sense. So, um, but, but it looked to me like there was a series of huts in the backcountry that you could actually take advantage of, Correct. Yes, there are. Um, I looked it up the other day. There are at least 40 huts over the 170 kilometers. And I would say that that's definitely the most popular way to do it, especially a lot of people that don't have backcountry experience. It seems like even though the, the trail itself is pretty difficult, a lot of what seemed to me to be novice hikers were taking it on with a guide or um, by using the hut system, a lot of the guide services use the huts and, you know, book everything for you. You walk a leisurely, I mean, pretty leisurely 10 ish miles, 10 to 15 miles a day. Um, so 
Yeah, there are definitely other options, and the huts do come with a little bit of luxury. They have cappuccinos there, and even if you aren't staying there, they'll still um, sell you cappuccinos. So that's a luxury that I didn't have on the PCT that um, I might be able to get used to. (laughs) Yeah, well, it looked like you could also resupply food in the huts. Is that true? I mean, they actually stock food in them, don't they, for sale? Yeah, um, I don't know specifically if they have, like, groceries per se, but I know that they'll pack you a picnic lunch. You can order that. Uh, you can order a hot meal. So I think that there are ways to do it without carrying any food if you wanted to. I did carry some food. Um, I would only, I carried two days of food at one point and that's the most food I ever carried, but wow. do that for convenience really, because if you're stopping at a hut, you might have to wait to get service. It might take a little while, but, um, I was doing kind of bigger days. So, but the food there is amazing. They have awesome salamis in France that have whole hazelnuts in them. I've never heard of such a thing before, but, uh, if you're hiking, it's pretty delicious. Yeah. So Kaylee, (laughs) Kaylee on the Pacific crest trail, I got to ask you, you know, like your typical carry day for food on the PCT was what? Maybe five days. Okay. That's not as bad as I would have thought, actually. I was, I was going oh, no. to guess longer. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's reasonable. So the, I guess the other option you have on the uh, TMB, Tour de Mont Blanc, which is easier mm-hmm. to say, obviously, TMB, um, is you can stay in town. You can stay in the villages. Did you ever take advantage of uh, any of the village stops? No. I only, I, I only went there. I went to Cormier and went to the grocery store there. So I didn't actually ever stay a whole night in the village. I only ever camped, Um, but I was kind of on a tight schedule. So I only had five days to do the trail. So I might have done it if I'd had more time, but um, A, I kind of like hiking as fast as I can just to see how many miles I can do. But B, I also had to catch a flight home. So I was a little limited. Gotcha. I mean, it sounds like you went solo. Is that true? No, I actually met up with my friend um, Flo from my trail family on the PCT. He lives in Germany. And so we decided um, I was already coming to Switzerland for a family vacation. And he said, well, you're going to be really close. We should hang out. And so I said, okay, that'd be fun. But I'm on my family vacation and I don't have that much time. He said, well, can't you get away and hike for a few days? And I said, maybe, maybe a few, maybe three. And then he said, well, I really want to do the TMB and it looks great. And then he convinced me to get away from my family vacation for five days. And so we decided to do the trail and, um, it was a lot of fun and it was kind of nice to have someone that you hiked with on the PCT to, to do it with together. And, we wanted to see also how in shape we still were because we weren't sure if we would make it. Luckily, there were bailout points ah, if right. we didn't, but right. we ended up making it. <laughs> so, so f- I was, that was one of my questions I had for you. It was, it's basically a f- you, know, you guys did it in five days. It sounds like. Yep, mm-hmm. like four and a half. It was four and a Nero because we were trying to get ourselves together to leave on a Friday morning, and it ended up, of course, you know, you have to catch a bus to get to the right place to start the trail and we needed to go to the grocery store first so we didn't end up starting hiking till 3 p.m so it was four and a Nero pretty much 
And is that is that pretty typical, or is I mean, you guys are probably in pretty good shape, having just like twenty six hundred miles. <laughs> is, uh, I mean, is it uh, more typical? Well, that to do? was last summer. So yeah, last summer I hiked the PCT, and then this summer it had been a whole year since we had hiked. So we weren't in as good of shape. Um, most people do it in about ten days, but I would say most people take a more leisurely pace. Stop and smell the roses a little more. <laughs> gotcha. That would probably be my style, Kaylee, to be honest. <laughs> but five, that's pretty impressive if 10 is the uh, the typical rate. So kudos to you. Uh, you. You go through three countries. You go through Switzerland, Italy, and France. Um, I'm sure all were fun in their own way, but did, did you have a favorite um, and why? Um, I think I liked Italy the best. I think that the views of... The Massif were just the prettiest at that time. We might have just had great weather then, too. That's always a factor. Um, you know, one night it kind of rained a little on us in France. So I think that, you know, weather always plays a part in which one's your favorite. But uh, I think Italy might have been the favorite. Honestly, it's hard to hard to know when you cross over into a new country. There aren't any border signs. It's the EU, so... Uh, you just kind of seamlessly flow into the next place and don't even realize that you've crossed a border. Right. Uh, the only way I knew was that instead of saying bonjour, people started saying ciao. And uh, so that's when I knew I was in Italy. Yeah. So, hey, that's actually a great question. Um, you know, obviously you speak English. I mean, you can you can get along <laughs> with just English if you don't know any of the other languages, I take it. Yeah, you can definitely get along. I mean, I always learn hello, thank you how do you speak English or like, do you speak English, et cetera. So that it's, I think it's just more polite. And I think you, you get really far by learning the simple phrases. And if you've got those people are super willing to help you. And I did, I did go a little incognito. People in Italy thought I was French. And I yeah. think that's just because I was still using French words because I hadn't realized we had crossed into Italy. But yeah. a lot of people kept asking if I was French there. <laughs> interesting, interesting. And so, um, yeah, I mean, do you do you run into a lot of day hikers too? Because it looked to me that this was like this was a trail that is used by day hikers as much as long distance hikers because there's a lot of access from various villages. Is that is that true? Yeah, um, we definitely ran into some day hikers and trail runners, especially. A lot of people were trail running. Um, I would say more trail runners than day hikers. I would say most people were either through hiking or trail running or mountain biking. Mm. It was amazing. The mountain bikers would carry their bikes up. And it is steep. It is not. The PCT is graded for horses. This is definitely not for horses. Mm. It is very, very steep. Then they couldn't even push their bikes up some parts. They had to carry them over their heads. I have no idea how they were going to come down. I was a little concerned because it's so rocky, but, um, I would say mostly trail runners and mountain bikers more so than day hikers. Well, I didn't see that coming. I, w I did not see <laughs> that coming. So d mountain bikers can use the entire trail. Yeah, um, actually, so the signage is really interesting on the trail. They have different, and the signage varies a little bit country to country. That's another way you knew you were in a different country is that they slightly change the trail marker. But there's basically a green Tour de Mont Blanc sign for hikers, and then they have a yellow one for mountain bikers. So sometimes those routes are different because the hikers, like the mountain bikers, they would have alternate routes that went on gravel roads and near the towns. And so 
I think that there are some people that I have no idea how they would do it all, but I think that there are some people that do the entire loop on their bike. Hmm, interesting. That I mean, I guess mm-hmm. that would make sense. So you could stay in the villages too. Yeah. Um, that, are a lot of people out there with guides or are the majority not with guides, do you think? I think it's probably half and half. Wow, that many um, that many are guides. Yeah. That's that's way higher than I would have thought. Yeah, I would say that you know, they also have these self-guided tours. So that I'm including that in my guess where you can kind of pay for someone to book all your, all your accommodation for you and kind of like print out little, I think daily guides for you. So I'm including that in my number, but, um, definitely a lot of people out there with, with guides or either some kind of, you know, prearranged bookings that they didn't necessarily set them all up themselves. Okay. That's interesting. I, I would not have expected expected it to be that high. Um, I, I take it this was your first hike in Europe. Is that uh, is that true? Yeah, this is my first like backpacking trip in Europe. I did some day hiking before, but definitely my first backpacking trip in Europe. So let me let me ask you the big questions here, Kaylee. If you're ready, um, mm-hmm. you want to tell us about your uh, your absolute toughest day on the trail. <laughs> I mean, it's a five days. Um, it's five days. If I ask you that for the PCT, I mean, you'd, you'd have to think probably a lot more But Yeah. So I'd say my toughest day was the second day out there. I ended up, um, that was the day when we ran into the ultra marathon and we went kind of really fast. I think that the fact that they were going so fast made us want to go fast too. And we got to a point where um, we were maybe 10 kilometers outside of Cormier, which is a small village in Italy. And we knew we wanted to get there because we needed to get more groceries for the next day. And it was a Saturday night. And we knew that the grocery stores would probably close, but we didn't know what time. And then we also were starting to get kind of low on water. It's really nice because usually every village you go to has some kind of like fountain outside that's very obvious that you can just refill your bottles from it's alpine spring water so anyways we were about to run out of water and we really wanted to get to this grocery store because the next day was sunday and the grocery stores in italy are usually closed sunday uh so we knew we needed to get there and so we hiked as fast as we could and i started getting just very exhausted and really need water. We made it to the grocery store 10 minutes before it closed. And um, then we were kind of walking around the village looking for a Whoa. campground anywhere in that village, which we, were, we weren't quite expecting that. And so we, and we also didn't have water. So we saw this hotel, it looked like a five-star hotel. And my friend turned to me, and just said, okay, you have to go in there and ask for water now. Because <laughs> for some reason, this was the one village where we couldn't find the water fountain that was just free water everywhere. Um, and so I went into this five-star hotel, uh, very kind of smelly and disheveled. And they politely ex- escorted me to the garden hose outside so that I could fill up water, which was very kind of them. And then we still had to hike, you know, out of town another two miles. And at that point, it was maybe 8 p.m. And it doesn't get dark till 9, so it was fine. But I was a little exhausted and also slightly embarrassed because on the way out of town, of course, we then passed like 
four free water fountains. Oh. But, <laughs> yeah. Wow. You got a little a little trail magic there. I don't know if you'd call that a, uh, you know, a, a mega trail magic, but at least you got water. It's um, true. What, what did, I mean, did, did you, is it, do you get trail magic on the TMB like you do on like the AT or the Pacific Crest Trail? No, I don't, I don't think it exists in that capacity. Um, it was interesting. I would say that because it's a popular vacation for people that are going and they're booking huts and they're, you have access to real food at all times, pretty much, and nice food, and you can buy it. <laughs> I think that that disincentivizes people from providing trail magic. I don't think there are a few heroes would like that because they might lose business. Um, but we did kind of have one magical moment on the trail where we ran into someone that had hiked the PCT the same year as us oh, wow. um, at a campground in Switzerland. That's amazing. So. I know. It was really cool. Um, his name was Six Toes. We hadn't ever met him on the trail, but it was funny. He came over and he recognized our tent because basically he knew we had an American tent and everyone else had this. I, I don't even remember. It's whatever the REI of Europe is. They had that brand and we were the only ones. He had like the big Agnes tent from REI. And so we both knew like okay you're american and so he came up to us and complimented our tent and then we talked to him about the pc and that's how we figured out we had both hiked the pct and uh that was kind of a magical moment yeah that's really cool do you think um i mean do you think the tmb is on the radar of most americans no just judging from the fact that how many how few americans we ran into i would say that it's not really on their radar saw a lot more french people a lot a lot of europeans some nordic um scandinavian countries as well as a lot of koreans really wow that's interesting yeah. because you don't see a lot of koreans on the american trails but i mean they obviously have the interest in in the alpine hiking so that that's an yeah. interesting statement actually hmm what and you were there what time of year July. Hmm. Hey, I will say, let me just throw this in there real quick. Um, of course, my downloads for the podcast, America's number one, Canada's number mm -hmm. two, Australia and New Zealand always are very high. They're usually in the top five, but you'll never guess what's number three. It's an Asian country. Korea? It's actually Japan. Japan. Yes, wow. Yes. Uh, Japan. I've had tons of downloads lately. I don't know why. Thank you. Any Japanese listeners that are out there? Um, but I just thought I'd throw that out there. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, it makes me kind of curious to explore some of the Japanese mountains. Yeah, definitely. I know they have great skiing there. Yes, so they I definitely can only do. imagine if you have skiing, yes. you have alpine hiking. And I do like to ski. I don't know about you. I wish I had learned when I was little. I, I've done it once. I'm not very good. I did learn how to cross country ski this past winter, and that was. That was a big accomplishment for me. I, I kind of like the, the Nordic skiing. It's, it's not the excitement the downhill is, but it's a little bit more peaceful. And you have the trail to yourself more rather than, I feel like, the ski slopes. I'm always just scared of hitting people. <laughs> yeah, well, it's also backcountry, which, uh, you know, obviously yeah. you do this because you love it just like I do. Yeah. Uh, um, hey, so I, I, 
refresh my memory. I can't recall if I ask you were what time of season were you July, June, yes, August? July, July, which was really great because the wildflowers are just beautiful then. So I definitely recommend they say, um, I think June through September are the popular months, but July was pretty perfect. I think it's hard. It's more crowded then. Um, I think July and August is when the refugios tend to get booked up. So definitely if you're thinking of doing that option, I would reserve it in advance. But um, yeah, July was definitely a beautiful, beautiful time. And was that your strategy? Did you guys try to get res- reservations or did you just kind of wing it? And, you know, I mean, if you did the PCT, I know you're good at winging it. So <laughs> Yeah, we just winged it. We didn't actually ever stay in any of the refugios. And so because we camped every night, that gave us more flexibility. I will say that, yeah, we had to wing it a little bit. Um, There were a couple campgrounds and designated campsites that were great to stay at. And then we were able to stay on, you know, the the border of France and Switzerland one night on a cull. And because we had, like, crossed over the Swiss border where you're not allowed to camp, we were able to stay at the top and have a beautiful view of, Mont Blanc was just really, really magical. So I definitely recommend if you're if you're a little more daring, I would say the backcountry camping's the way to go. Yeah, and so July, you guys are kind of mm-hmm. I mean, still in July. I mean, you know from the PCT, you can definitely get into snow. I'm sure there was snow in areas at that time of year. Um what was Yes, sn- was... a tiny bit, but the trail it stays below nine thousand feet. So okay. okay. You're usually it's snow patches. It's not tons of snow. We did go on a high route variant and we got to glissade ish, you know, 50 feet, which I was really hoping we would get to glissade. So that was fun. But, um, yeah, it's, it's minimal snow travel, nothing to be scared about. So no, no crampons, uh, no ice axe. You don't need any of that stuff, huh? No, no crampons, no micro spikes, just, you know, if you have your poles and, you kick a step in the snow, you're fine. Yeah, and you definitely carried those on the PCT, I'm guessing, right? Oh, uh, carried what? The uh, cr- the crampons and the ice axe. Micro I had micro spikes, and I did have an ice axe. Um, my year was a little complicated, so I did. I got to the Sierras in early June, and the snow bridges were, mel- were melting, but we were approaching peak melt, and some rivers were about to be uncrossable. So I did the first 100 miles. And at that point, everyone in my tray family said, you know what? It's a little dicey and the melt's getting worse every day when we were there. So I flipped and did Northern California and Oregon. And then I went back to the Sierras in August and finished them up then. So when I was in the Sierras in June, 100% I needed an ice axe and micro spikes. Forester Pass was, whew interesting that was my first time ever doing any kind of snow hiking so um that was quite quite the interesting experience I was very fortunate there was someone in my trail family that had mountaineering experience and we did you know practice self-arresting on bunny hills before we went up there but there's nothing like being out there when it's just you know a 60 degree ice wall that you're walking up for sure but on the TMB, I mean, unless you go, what, late May or early June, you probably, you don't think you have to worry about snow too much? No, definitely not. Okay. 
That's that's interesting. I, I I mean, obviously, I saw snow in a lot of pictures, so that's why I was asking. Um, and I mean, I, you're, it seems like you're super remote at times, but then again, at other times, it doesn't. Are, are you able to get cell reception most of the time on the on the uh, Tour de Mont Blanc? Yeah, every time I looked at my cell phone, which was you know not often, I had cell reception. So I'm pretty sure you have it the whole time. You're never more than 10 kilometers away from something, whether it's a tiny village or a larger one. Um, yeah, I, it, it's not very remote. Um, that is one thing I would definitely note. It's, you can almost always, even if you're at the top of a mountain pass, see a small village somewhere in the distance. Um, so that's a little bit different than the PCT, which is much more remote. I, when I was on the PCT, I ran into a family that was hiking the PCT, they said they come every summer and do a month on the PCT. And they're, they were from Switzerland. And I said, why do you come here? You have the Alps. They're so beautiful. And they said that the whole reason why they came is they said they can, you always are connected. You're always, you're never far, far away from anything. And they loved how remote the PCT was, which I found really interesting and didn't really understand it until I went out and did the TMB. Yeah, I, I definitely respect that statement. I, you know, the other thing I wanted to ask you, was about wildlife because um, obviously you have a, a lot of wildlife on the Pacific Crest Trail, but on the uh, yeah. on the Tour de Mont Blanc, I saw cows, I saw <laughs> sheep, maybe goats. Uh, but uh, I mean, cows. are you are you really getting any wildlife on the uh, TMB? Yeah, um, well, there are no bears in the Alps at all, which is um, just something to note. So you don't have to ever hang food or anything like that. Huh. But um, there are ibex, which. Um, is a species of goat that lives in the Alps and there, I didn't see one. I'm really disappointed. I really wanted to see one in the wild. Um, so males, male Ibex can weigh up to 160 kilograms, kilograms, not pounds. So they're massive. Um, and I didn't get to see one of those, but I did see a chamois, um, which is another species of goat. It's very, it's a lot smaller. Um, but those are pretty cool to see. And then, of course, they have marmots, which big, are fat probably my too. favorite animal. Yeah, they're, they're, they're kind of cute, man. But they're like thieves. They're master thieves. I don't know if you have ever had yeah. that experience. They're good yeah, at stealing um, food. They didn't, they, they didn't really take anyone's food that I saw. I Because there are so many people around, I would, I would imagine that they're pretty good at stealing food. But I didn't. They didn't try to take my food. I guess I just look mean or something. <laughs> that must be it. Did you did you have any interesting encounters with people? That's the other question. That that's the other um, wildlife in the wilderness. It's always an experience. <laughs> True. You know, I would say running into six toes from the PCT was really interesting. Other than that, I think that most people do their socializing for the day at the refugios. It's really weird because there are so many people on the trail. I think I read somewhere online that 60,000 people do it every year, which seems ungodly high to me. Um, and it was, there was almost always someone in sight. I would say there were moments of peacefulness where you had the whole place to yourself. But if you were at the top of a call, you know, there were probably five or six other groups there at the same time as you. And so people don't stop to say hi to you on the trail as often as they would um, on the PCT. Just because I felt like on the PCT, I saw 15, 20 people a day max. And this was, 
probably 200 people a day at least. Um, I didn't do, I didn't count. Um, but so people don't necessarily stop and say hi to you as often. The one interesting group of people we ran into was a group of boy scouts from Hong Kong and they were quite characters. They were like rambunctious little 13 year old boys that we, um, sat at the top of a little pass with and ate lunch next to, and they all, um, spoke English fluently and were, you know, just very curious about where I was from. And I said, Oh, the U S and they're like, well, obviously what state? And they just kept pestering me about, um, different things, you know, very nice questions, but they were a lot of fun. They did, um, we passed them on the way down and they, they kicked a lot of rocks, <laughs> which was kind of funny, but, um, we had to kind of move past them pretty quickly cause I think they were trying to start a little bit of a rock slide. Interesting. Um, <laughs> speaking of rocks, I noticed that there were some ladder climbs on the hike, right? And some of them look yeah. kind of tough. Can you comment on those? Um, Okay. They were exposed. So if you don't like heights, I would say that it wouldn't be for you. And you're not strapped into anything. So if you let go, that would not be good. I, I'm i not scared of heights at all. And I felt, you know, the ladders are really securely bolted in. It's all just, you just have to hang on and climb. I mean, obviously, things can happen. People can slip. But... I felt very safe. I felt way less safe walking over snow bridges in the Sierra than I did on these ladders because it's all within your control and there's no real, I mean, there is real danger if you were to let go, but there's nothing unpredictable. It's just a ladder. So I would say that if you're scared of heights, you could definitely, you just would have to not look down and only focus on the rock and look up when you're going up them. But I would say, yeah, it's probably about, you know, maybe a quarter of a mile where you're climbing up ladders at one point, but it's only one day. So it, it, the ladders are not something where you need to be clipped in or anything. I mean, you, you didn't feel like you needed um, to be. So there's no way, I mean, I guess if you brought your own carabiners and harness, you could clip yourself in, but there's no system. No one I saw clip themselves into it. Um, it's, it's safe enough, but I, there are definitely maybe one or two spots where if you fell and let go, it would not be good. You would sustain an injury. Hmm. So, I mean, in terms of, and this is kind of a follow-up question to that, in terms of difficulty, um, like, you know, I, it, I heard you say that there's not a lot of um, graded trails. So you're pretty much going up and down kind of like Maine or New Hampshire on in the East Coast. But um, so, how, how would you talk, how would you, how would you discuss the difficulty, rate the difficulty of the trail? Because I, I read yeah. that there was like 6.2 miles of elevation gain and loss. So you're definitely working out there, right? Yeah. Um, I would say it's really steep. It is, you... Uh, there are points on the way down where you have to turn around and hold the rocks behind you to lower yourself down. And it's kind of consistently like that for a mile. Whereas in the U S that might be maybe, you know, one or two points on the trail where you would have to do that. So I think that it is definitely really steep. Um, I mean, the PCT is graded for horses and that's my main point of comparison 
But honestly, it's like walking upstairs the whole time. If you're going uphill, um, it it's, you know, big steps from maybe my foot to my knee is my next step. And it's, it's definitely challenging. It's, they don't like switchbacks. I would say if it's, you know, less than maybe a 30% angle, they're not going to put in a switchback and then, you know, 30 to 50% of an angle, they're going to have a switchback. And if it's greater than 50%, then they're just going to throw a ladder up there. So, um, they're, they're not really into making it easy. Um, it's, it's definitely a difficult trail. That definitely sounds like New England on the Appalachian Trail. <laughs> now that you're describing okay. it, what, uh, so what? What I love about this trail, and I know the Pacific Crest Trail has plenty of this, and um, that is obviously lacking to a, a large degree on the Appalachian Trail, is the above tree line hiking. It looks phenomenal. Yeah. Um, I mean, and it seems like you have views a lot, like the majority of the time. I'm curious to ask you just about like the wind and the bugs. I mean, do you, do you get wind at times? Do you get bugs at times? I mean, how did that impact your experience? Yeah, you get wind for sure. It's very pleasant because when you drop down into the valley, it gets hot. And so when you're hiking back up out of the valley, it's really nice to have the wind. Um, and then there was a time where I did have to be in full rain gear because it started, it got windy and, the temperature dropped. I was at the top of a pass and it started opening up. The sky just opened up and dumped on you as it does in the mountains. So I would say I brought rain gear and I was glad I did because there was a point where I definitely wanted to be. I would have been fine without my rain pants, uh, but I was happy I had them and I wore them. <laughs> so I would say there is some wind. There were no bugs. I brought my 100% deep because I had learned my lesson in Oregon on the PCT that sometimes you need a hundred percent deep, <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't break it out. There weren't, there was maybe one day where some flies were flying around, but n- nothing, no mosquitoes. Um, you know, part of that might sometimes it's due to seasonality. So there's a chance I just missed it. Um, but I didn't have any bad experiences with any bugs. Yeah, that's that's great because bugs can be a killer. They can definitely oh, yeah. they can turn a situation around in a hurry. <laughs> yeah. So maybe to close this out, I'm going to ask you a few questions here, Kaylee. Mm-hmm. But, and I wanted to ask you specifically about the um, and hopefully I say this correctly, the hot route and also the GR5. They're two European long distance trails. I don't know if you know much about them. I don't know a ton about them. I've heard of both. Um, just yeah. cur- curious on how this compares in popularity. Uh, to the other scenery difficulty. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I definitely think that they're less popular. So GR5 is a lot longer. It actually starts in the Netherlands and then it finishes, I think, in Nice in France. Um, and so actually part of the GR5 coincides with the TMB. So I do think that you get the stunning views of the Alps, but I know it goes through some more scenic countryside as well and definitely would take a lot longer. And then for the out route, I actually ran into someone. Um, one of the variants that I did on the TMB was part of the out route. And I actually ran into two people that were hiking it. And that one's higher up. So I think that um, 
the elevation goes up to about 3,000 meters, whereas the TMB for the most part stays right around 2,500 meters. So I think it's just a little bit higher and it's also a little longer. It's 180 kilometers. I think it's slightly less popular. I think just, you know, it's a little bit more challenging and you also get to see the Matterhorn with that one. So that would be pretty cool because that one you hike from Chamonix, which is where everyone who's going to hike Mont Blanc comes to and uses as their base pretty much is Chamonix. So you're hiking from Mont Blanc all the way to the Matterhorn, which is in Zermatt. And so I think that you get to see kind of two iconic mountains. And I think that would be really interesting. The only thing I would say about that one is that because you're ending in Switzerland, there's probably less opportunity for, you know, wild camping uh, just due to regulations in Switzerland. So I think you'd be more constrained to huts, but um, that could also be really great for a different type of trip. So um, that one's definitely on my list too. (laughs) Yeah, well, that was a question I had for you now that you've hiked uh, the TMB in Europe. I mean, did that make you want to hike these other trails even more? Or would you rather go do the Camino or, um, you know, just some of the, like, well, you've already done the John Muir, but some of the other other options that are out there. Yeah, so I kind of have two things on my list right now. So one is, uh, I think it's pronounced, I, I don't know how to say this exactly, but it's called Nordkalatruta, which is in Norway, Sweden, and Finland. Mm, interesting. Um, I really love Norway. I, I'm kind of obsessed with the way that the mountains come right out of the ocean and are just snow-capped at all times. I think it's so beautiful, and I also am attracted to the fact that there's endless light in the summer, so I would love to do that one. Um, have, have, you but, heard of, have you heard about the Kungsled? Yeah, I have. Actually, okay, so this other ultra runner I like, her name's Emily Forsberg, and she just finished it, and she got an FTK on it, so, or FKT, fast snow, <laughs> FKT. Um, on it. So fastest mm-hmm. no time for the listeners. Yep. So that was kind of exciting to follow. She's a Solomon athlete. So that was kind of cool to watch, but, um, yeah, that one's mostly in Sweden, I think. Right. I think it's Northern Sweden, but you know what? I do have a podcast episode on that, which if you give me a second, I can, uh, I can click to and give you the number. Um, so I, I figured that you were obviously eyeing Europe. <laughs> yeah, have. definitely. Um, I do have an American, not trail, but a route rather on my list, the Sierra High Route. I oh, would yeah. love to go. do that. My orienteering skills are a little subpar, though. I need to get them up to speed before doing that. <laughs> well, now now I'm sure they're better than most. And, and, and to get back, I interviewed Theo and B in episode 38 about the Kungsleden, okay. and it's actually in northern Sweden. You were absolutely correct. It's a 273-mile <laughs> Uh, 440 kilometer trail. So there you go. One, one more for your list. Definitely. It's a long list. (laughs) Hey, so when you hike, I did, I did want to ask you about money though. Cause when you hike in Europe, it's, it's not inexpensive, right? It's probably more expensive than hiking in the States. Can you comment to that? Yeah. Um, so the way that I did it was pretty cheap. Obviously the flight over there is expensive. I think it's like $1,700 to fly there. And then once I was there um, and hiking, I was staying 
in my tent, which was relatively cheap. The most I paid to stay somewhere was 16 Swiss francs at a campground. Um, And they charge by person, not by tent. So (laughs) just in case anyone factors that in. Hmm. And then I mostly bought food from a grocery store. So, you know, about the same price as groceries in the U.S., maybe slightly, you know, the dollar's not doing as great as it once was, so slightly more expensive. But um, on the whole, I would say doing the trail was pretty affordable. You don't have to buy any kind of permit or anything to hike it. So hiking's free, um, just as it is most places in the U.S. I don't know. I have to pay a national park entrance fee here and there. But, yeah, it was um, pretty affordable. I did have a little bit of a luxurious end to my trip because I ended up staying in Chamonix and a nice Airbnb at the end and going to some French restaurants. But you could get away with doing it cheaper for sure. Um, I, I did notice that some people like uh, that maybe aren't looking for the as much of a hardcore experience. And, and obviously right. doing the PCT, you, I have certainly earned – the reputation for being a, a hardcore hiker, but um, <laughs> but it did look like there were options where you could take gondolas and buses and basically yes. kind of cherry pick the hike for those that uh, may not be as physically fit as you or just may not want to work as hard as them. Can you comment yeah, on that? Yeah, definitely. So the gondolas, you can take one um, up to La Bravant, which is a mountain outlook outside of Chamonix. There were a few other places where you could take gondolas as well. I think the buses might be slightly less efficient just because when you're hiking around a great, a large mountain range, then the buses don't always have the most direct route to the next town. Um, So I was kind of researching and trying to figure out, okay, well, if I had a bailout at the halfway point, how long would it take me to get back to the start? And it was going to be four hours which Whoa. on buses, which, you know, isn't terrible, but it all just kind of depends upon where the mountain range is and whether or not that's in the way of you getting to the next town that you would want to go to. So I would say that's a factor. The gondolas are awesome and beautiful and scenic. Um, they are expensive. So I think I paid... 66 euros for an all-day pass for the region in Chamonix on the day when I got back um, from hiking. But it was really fun. I went up to Aguida Midi, which is where a lot of the people that are going to try to summit Mont Blanc go. So they all take the gondola to this point, and then they you watch them all gear up, and then they go start hiking off to base camp. So that was really fun to watch. So I think it's worth it. Um, I just would look into sometimes you can pick to have an all day pass for a region or maybe, and that could be cheaper if you're going to take a few. So I would do a little bit of research before um, just hopping on a gondola if you know you want to take multiple. Okay. Well, that's good advice. Um, I mean, I wanted to ask you too. Like, was there a time on your hike when you laughed? Tell tell us about a time you laughed on your hike the hardest. Um, let's see. I think there was this one point where we were about to cross over. So almost all the, I think where the border crossings were, and they weren't well marked, but um, 
almost all the borders are right at the top of a mountain pass, which is kind of cool. And right when um, I was leaving Italy and going to Switzerland, I had a 5,000-foot climb. And during the last 500, and it was all exposed, and the last 500 feet of the climb, we could see this, the cumulus cloud starting to build up and this thunderstorm starting to brew. And I get really nervous on mountain passes with thunderstorms. And it was at the point where... With good reason. You know, with good reason. Yeah. Let me say that. <laughs> Definitely. Um, but I kind of started I was already huffing and puffing because I wasn't in my PCT shape and I'd already climbed 4,500 feet it was the last 500 feet but it didn't make sense at that point to go back down because the whole ridge was exposed anyways so I just had to start kind of working as hard as I could and I was nervous but as soon as I got to the top the thunderstorm ended up shifting to a different area and there's this bright patch of blue sky and we walked another, you know, maybe one kilometer further and there was a, a refugio that had beer and I just kind of started laughing because the juxtaposition of just being kind of scared of the elements of nature and then immediately within the next 15 minutes being in this beautiful sunshine with a beer in your hand um, was just kind of funny, but, um, I was glad that the thunderstorm ended up going the other direction to say the least. It, what is the old expression? The trail delivers, but you know, it, it is interesting, yeah. it, especially when you're out there for multi-days, the, the mood swings, like the, uh, j just how you can go from an absolute low to an absolute high in such a short period of time over something simple, like you just described, you know, and then the longer you're out there, the more that's probably true. But um, that's interesting to hear. Um, hey, so to, having just come off the PCT and going to the uh, Tour de Mont Blanc, um, what, what did you like the most about each one? What did you like the least about each one? I'm kind of curious to compare the two because you're in a very good position <laughs> to do that. Definitely. Um, well, the Alps are just majestic. It's I love that every single day when I woke up, I was on some crazy ridge walk that was surreal. You know, that you mentioned before, the sound of music. It, it felt like that every second, which is something that when you're on a 2,650-mile trail, yes, there are views that beautiful, but they're not every day. Some days you're just walking through the forest yeah, and, right. you know, you see the same trees and maybe get a tiny glimpse of, um, you know, some kind of viewpoint once every five miles. And so I would say that in that sense of just cherry picking the best days, the Tour de Mont Blanc every single day is the best day. And so that's one thing I loved about it. I also love the fact that you could wake up and walk two miles and there would be a cappuccino within five miles every day. You know, yeah. that was kind of nice. So the luxury of that was something that I wasn't used to. And, um, that was kind of fun, especially when you've been in normal life and you're just used to having that stuff all the time. Uh, and then I would say that for the PCT, I think that what's so magical about that is the mental endurance you just feel so proud of yourself when you're hiking that far because 
you've stuck with it and you know that, you know, not everyone sticks with it. A lot of your friends that you'll hike with the first couple weeks, you'll find out, you'll hear back later, you know, oh, they're actually at home now or um, had to get off trail for, you know, an injury. And so I think that that's really special about the PCT. I also think that the PCT is so special because it's remote and I remember going into the Sierras in a high snow year, not knowing what I was doing and just feeling so connected to my trail family and trusting them so much and that we were in it together and we were going to cross the rivers together and, you know, make calls about which rig lines to walk up together and how, because everything was covered in snow. So there wasn't a trail. You just navigated and found the best path. And that was such a cool experience. And I just remember going into it, you know, calling my mom from, I think Kennedy Meadows had like a, a, a phone booth. There wasn't even cell service there, but just calling her and um, just letting her know, hey, like you might not hear from me for a week, week and a half. Um, it's going to be a little bit sketchy, but I'll be fine. And just having to have her trust me on that. And then just kind of coming out of it in Bishop and, you know, calling your family and telling them I made it through the first hundred miles. And that's a very different experience. And it was also, I would say the Sierras are equally beautiful to the Alps. Um, the volcanoes are equally beautiful to the Alps, but really you, there are times on the trail when not every day is magical scenery. So, um, yeah. But both are great experiences. They're just different. Hey, so, you know, you touched on something on the PCT. Um, I mean, would you recommend hiking with somebody else on the PCT? If you're in a high snow year and you're going into the Sierras, yes, absolutely. And if you're doing it at the time when there is a lot of snow, I would say that there were a few people that hiked alone in the Sierras in early June, my year, and it was 260% of average snowpack. And the rivers were huge. And even strong guys that were six foot tall, it's, it's an advantage to be tall in the, when you're crossing a river, it's just a matter of the fact that for me, if a river's up to, if someone's six foot four, the water might be up to their knees, it's up to my hips. And so it's, it's just, a different experience based upon how large you are to cross a river and even some tall, strong people, you know, had tricky river crossings. There was a guy that lost his pack and what you do basically, if you, if you lose your balance, they tell you to get rid of your pack because you have to swim at that point. If you get rid of your pack and you're alone, now you don't have a tent. You might not have, if you didn't take your maps off your pack, you've lost your maps if you've lost your maps and your, and your tent and your sleeping bag, it's going to be a rough night. And if the trail's not visible at that point, you know, you can run into real, real danger. Um, so I, I don't, I wouldn't advise doing it by yourself if, if that's the case, but I think that's totally fine. If, when I came back in August to do the Sierras, everything was clear. You a hundred percent could hike alone then. Um, and I know people that did the whole trail by themselves and loved every minute of it. It's, it's really, you get to build your own experience. And for me, meeting the people I met was one of the best parts, but it's, 
you know, you got to hike your own hike, as they say. So um, I would not dissuade anyone from doing it except for the Sierras in the high snow year. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I know that snow plays a big part in the Sierras of the Pacific Crest Trail that, you know, you don't get as much in the AT, right? So, right. Um, uh, what, what about back to the Tour de Mont Blanc? Is, I mean, if, if listeners are, are, I'm sure they will be excited about doing, <laughs> doing this hike, is there a preferred guidebook that you recommend or a place that they should go to learn more about it? Um, I just went, there's a site uh, that I used, it's called like autourdemontblanc.com, and I went to the English version, and I honestly just printed off topo maps from that. <laughs> um and that worked out well for me. There are definitely um, guidebooks. The one that is kind of the guidebook of choice that everyone has is called Cicerone, the Tour of Mont Blanc. And most people I ran into had that one. I didn't have the guidebook. It's more of a like, you'll come to this gravel road. And once you cross this like lovely area with cows, turn left kind of thing. It's more of a description um, the maps were perfectly sufficient and the tra- trails well signed. So I don't think you necessarily need a guidebook. There were also designated campsites marked on the map that I had. So that was helpful. But um, I think that there is a little bit more description of exactly where you can camp and probably just more details about, for example, in Switzerland, I showed it up, up at a campground and I didn't know how much it cost, but I'm sure that information would have been available in that cicerone book um but yeah so do you i mean do you definitely recommend getting the maps because i heard you talk about the maps a few times um it sounds like that would be a good thing to have i really enjoyed having the maps because it outlines the variants that you can do and then you're able to judge and see okay this is where this variant goes versus this one i think that because this one's on the ridge line it's gonna have a better view let's do that one So that was why I liked having the maps. I think, I'm trying to think, if I brought nothing and just showed up with a backpack and relied on signs, it would have been okay, maybe. I think I give myself 90% chance of making it, but um, (laughs) I would recommend carrying maps. I think it's, it's always a good thing to have them just in case you get off track. Usually what will happen is, you'll come to an intersection with the trail and it'll tell you there'll be a sign for the TMB. And then sometimes they don't have a sign as to which way the TMB is. But if you know the next, the name of the next town that you're going to, the sign says, okay, you know, Cormier this way, Champex this way. And then as long as you know, which, which is the next city on or village on your stop, then you should be fine, um, or what the next name of the next pass is. But I would say that I personally like having the maps just to know, because um, sometimes there are options of which way to go. And uh, I thought I made was able to make better decisions about the choices there. You know, and, and even if if you only need them ninety or ten percent of the time, it can save you like hours of grief for right? going the wrong <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's I could definitely see that. I've all I, I'm a big map guy. I never travel without one, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Hey, so just curious how the the TMB was exactly like you expected and how it was totally different. 
Yeah. Um, hmm. That's a good question. I think I was expecting it to be slightly more remote than it was. Um, I knew that it went through villages, but I just didn't, it didn't quite dawn upon me that 10 every 10 kilometers when there's a village, that's actually pretty close. Um, mm -hmm. and I, I knew that there were going to be villages, but, um, yeah, I would say that that kind of surprised me a little bit. And then how is exactly like I expected it? Um, the cappuccinos were amazing <laughs> and just having access to food all the time and not having to get to day four and a half and tell yourself at lunch, you know, you can only eat like two slices of cheese and three crackers because oh, this food has to last another the, day. The rationing. There's, I've been there. Yep, the no rationing. rationing. That's, uh, that's tough. That's a great point. I went with a small bear can into the Sierras my first go around. That was the biggest mistake of my life. Uh, I've, I've been there I, on the rationing, like where I literally put 10 days of food into bags that I could eat because if I, <laughs> if I didn't, I mean, I know what you're saying. Yeah. So, hey, before I ask you one closing question just about the TMB, do you have a favorite piece, piece of gear that you like to take on the trail? Ooh. Oh, that's a good question. I'm always um, I'm always curious because people are so passionate about gear, but everybody's got like the one or two or three things that just changed the game for them. That's kind of what I'm asking. <laughs> yeah, um, I honestly think my puffy coat. I bring it even when it's supposed to be like 80 degrees outside. <laughs> I get cold easily. Like, You're like I my love wife. My puffy coat. My <laughs> wife is the same way. That's funny. You probably wear it where it would wear it in the middle of like uh, the summer if you had to. If it was a cold you know, <laughs> night. Definitely. Um, I yeah. I I don't really go anywhere without it. So I think my puffy coat's my favorite. Wow. Yeah. That's a good answer. I like that. What, what about any closing advice to somebody that's thinking about doing a Tour de Mont Blanc hike? Um, I would say that you should definitely camp out at least one night, even if you're planning on doing the huts. If you have the option to bring your tent and the flexibility, I would really recommend it because you just, there's nothing like waking up at you know the sunrise and having the whole view to yourself because... Most of the time during the day, you're not, you're going to get to the top of the pass and there are going to be five other people there. So if you're like me and you love just that solitude and having that mountain all to yourself, I recommend camping out at least one night. That's great advice. You know, the other thing I got to ask you that we didn't talk about, because I, I love to fish. Um, mm -hmm. I saw those beautiful alpine lakes with the cathedral peaks around them. Um, are, are people out there fishing in those high alpine lakes? I, the only place I saw people fish was in town, actually. Really? So there's Lake Champex, and I saw a lot of people fishing there, but I didn't see anyone, like, trekking around up high fishing. But Interesting. I might have missed it. I don't know. Hmm. Interesting. I'll have to look into that. I mean, maybe it's not permitted. Um, maybe. Maybe the lakes just are not, they don't sustain them. I, I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> something to ponder after you listen to this podcast. So Kaylee, as we wrap up one last question, um, I mean, is there any way yeah, people will hear your, uh, tales about the TMB? They might have questions, you know, any, any ways that they can reach out to you or follow you? 
Yeah, um, they can definitely reach out to me via Instagram. I have an account with Smiles Hikes. And so if you want to reach out to me that way, I'd love to give you advice um, or just answer any questions you might have, not necessarily give you advice um, because you can definitely hike your own hike. And um, so definitely reach out to me there as well as, okay, my hiking partner has a blog that features our Tour de Mont Blanc journey. So if you want to read about it, he's also a really good photographer. It's dowhatmakegood.de because he's German, but it's all in English. He writes in English. And he, yeah, the pictures are amazing. So if I haven't convinced you already to hike it, definitely look at those pictures as well as it has kind of day-to-day descriptions of where we hiked and camped. So that might be a good resource as well. And that also has our PCT journey on it as well. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, that, that is awesome. That is certainly on my list. Um, I just need a, I need a few more years before I can get there, (laughs) but, um, I, I will definitely get some links to you. So awesome. Well, congratulations. I mean, um, I mean, you've had a couple great years and that's, uh, that's what life's all about, right? Yeah. Thank you so much for talking to me. Yeah. Well, hopefully, I mean, I know the PCT interview with 30 Pack inspired you. So hopefully, and, and listeners, if you hear this podcast, you go out, you do the TMB, you know, Kaylee and I will be upset if you don't reach out to us and tell us that you heard the podcast <laughs> and you did it because of this interview. So thank you for being on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Into Backpacking Podcast. This is your host, Bird Shooter, wishing you the best for your travels on the trail. To subscribe to this show, visit iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And give us a thumbs up or a positive comment while you're there. You can also download shows directly from intobackpacking.com. Just click the podcast tab on the main menu. Music for this show was provided by Jarrus under a Creative Commons license and is titled Hillbilly Anarchy. This show is a production of N2 Backpacking and is copyrighted by N2 Ventures Inc. For more information on this podcast or to provide feedback or comments on this or future shows, please visit us at N2Backpacking.com. That's the letter N, the number two, backpacking.com.